This is Season 2, Episode 27 of the Language Mastery Show with Ollie Richards. Here's a little sample of what's coming up. There are certain ingredients that we can say with some confidence that without which language learning wouldn't be possible. And I said, number the first obvious thing is huge amounts of exposure. Um, and this is what most methods ironically get wrong, because most methods try to teach you in a kind of constructivist way. So they'll say, right, let's build up the blocks of language until you know everything, at which point you'll be able to speak. But it doesn't work like that. The way we work from getting huge amounts of exposure and then deducing and understanding from that. You also need to be motivated to learn it, because without motivation, you won't learn a thing. You also need to spend lots of time actually actually using actively the language, which means lots of time speaking it. It doesn't matter if you spend a lifetime listening, you won't be able to speak. Welcome back to the Language Mastery Show. This is your host, John Fotheringham. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of talking with Ollie Richards again, my friend and fellow author who was last on the podcast six years ago. Hard to believe it's been that long. Anyway, we get into a in-depth wide-ranging conversation on what he's learned in that time, more about why he thinks stories are such an effective way to learn languages, the importance of identity and mindset in language learning, and much, much more. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I think you will too. It did run a little long, which probably is a sign of how much we were enjoying ourselves, so I decided to break this up into two parts. So without further ado, please enjoy part one of my conversation with Ollie Richards of I Will Teach You a Language. Hey, hey, there he is, the man, the legend. John, how's it going? Going well. How about yourself? Well, it was going fine until I noticed that on your bookshelf, you've got one of my books and three of Benny's. This is true. So we're going to have. This is a travesty to, that I will have to rectify. I mean, that's just that's just not good enough. I I apologize. You're right. You're right. And uh, yeah, we did we did check out your Russian book from the library. So in the library, oh, that's cool. Didn't realize it was one of the things that we changed as we got out of debt was giving up my book buying addiction and starting to uh, use the library more. So. So in my defense, how's that working out for you? It works out great. They buy so many books for us because we'll, you know, you'll go look and see if they have X book. They don't have the book. You submit a request for them to buy it, and they have not once said no. They have spent really hundreds of dollars on just me (laughs) of getting my tax. But I guess they must like it that people kind of turn up and engage with the um, book thing, right? The library thing. So yeah, so. For the the people that are listening, I I assume most people that are listening to my show probably are already familiar with you. But if not, let's do a quick sort of origin story, both of you with learning foreign languages and then also with starting the blog, getting into writing the books, the the whole thing. So kind of the elevator version of who you are, where you're from, all that. Sure. Sure. Okay, so hi everybody. My name is Ollie Richards. I'm from the UK. Um, although sometimes people think I'm Australian when they hear me talk, I haven't figured out why. But that's interesting. That's a weird, weird fact. Um, so yeah, I am. Uh, I have been really into languages. I but that, I was kind of quite a late starter. So I learned my first foreign language when I was 19, and I kind of just bulldozed my way through it because um, I was so you know like with the passion and stubbornness of a 19 year old just refused to give up and worked really hard and then that gave me a certain level of confidence with which i went on to learn more and more languages i also um you know changed careers a whole bunch of times which took me to different countries and i learned the languages of the countries where i was living generally 
And then some of those languages I got really good at, others I kind of forgot. I've learned about 10 languages in total, half of which uh, I would say I still speak really well. Uh, then, then there's like a quarter which I'm kind of conversational, rusty, and then another quarter which I've pretty, pretty much forgotten. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so that's my kind of broad history with language learning. And then um, around six years ago or so, I was living in the Middle East, which is where we had our, our first ever interview for this podcast. I remember. Right. Yes, it's cool that um, that it's still going this long. And um, I mean, you know, the kind of simplified version of the story is that I was kind of bored at the weekends. So I started to look for a creative outlet. And so I started blogging about my language learning stuff because I I was really I was I was a language teacher before that. I taught English for a few years and um, got really into teaching theory. So I started kind of blogging about the the kind of intersection between teaching theory and actually my kind of real life experience learning languages and just trying to give kind of just you know real thoughts on uh, on what I'd done. And then that grew into a, a blog with, um, with an audience of people that followed me. And then I, um, did a bunch of stuff with that, um, including, uh, writing some books of short stories, which then got, uh, led to a partnership with teach yourself. And so now we have, uh, we've got 16 titles currently out and we've got another seven or eight Amazing. coming in the next year or so. Uh, one of which is on your bookshelf right behind you, yes, German. Yep. So good job I mean, with that. That's that's uh, there sort of as a a reminder of wanting to get myself to Berlin in March, but that's still a okay a hope. Yeah, yeah. And so these days, um, these days, yeah. So I, I do a whole bunch of things, but my whole basically what I what what I do now is um, create language learning material and uh, training courses which all centers which all centers around the idea of learning through story so i'm a huge fan of learning through through story and so everything that i do whether it's my kind of beginner programs or my books or 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 my uh whatever um, you know 30 day spanish grammar challenges whatever it all centers around story um and uh yeah so that's that kind of brings us to the 11th of february 2020 indeed i cannot believe it's been what six years or more since that first six interview? and a half? Six and well, a half. I mean, yeah, is, maybe maybe about maybe about six. Yeah, it, yeah. As my uh, my family always jokes, time is fun when you're having flies. Uh, <laughs> so that that's pretty cool. So, how did you get to stories as sort of your thing? Like, how did that crystallize? Because that I don't think that was really on your radar yet, or that maybe hadn't quite gestated into a a focus when we when we first chatted yeah so i mean what my focus on stories now is a kind of it's a combination of two things it's very, it's on the, on the one hand it it's it's me understanding more and more about how i what's really responsible for how i've learned languages mm-hmm. which we can get into and then it's also understanding how i can sort of effectively present things to to an audience which kind of ties hand in hand in hand really with the with with the blog and and, and the writing so to to, fl- to flesh that out a little um i've always learnt languages mostly through input i've never been a big fan of of, of study in the traditional sense and so and, and the input has been a, a big range of things in some languages it's been like mostly speaking in other languages it's been mostly reading but it's always been a kind of input based approach so i've i've kind of taken the the line of no, I, I don't really care if I make mistakes. I kind of quite enjoy um, speaking. And so I'm just going to do what I like. So I kind of 
talk to people, uh, read content that I'm interested in, speak, and then just keep doing that. And then providing that you kind of turn up every day and put the time in, you end up getting getting better. And so I'd always been a big, I'd always kind of practiced the input thing mm-hmm. myself. And then, so I have this this kind of, this this story that I tell about um, when I first discovered the real power of, of of reading, and the truth is that I kind of discovered it back then, and then kind of forgot about it, and then kind of re remembered it later because I do find that every language is a bit different in terms of the sure. process, um, and and you'll see why in a second. So the story briefly goes that I was, um, and it's totally true, I was I was traveling around Argentina, um, some a long, a long time ago, and I was up in the mountains on the border of. Uh, with Bolivia, this is northwest Argentina, and this tiny little village called Irusha, which is up up in the mountains, three thousand is it meters or feet? I don't know. I always get that mixed up. Very high, mm-hmm. and um, and I went to I went to sleep one night and woke up and I couldn't breathe because of the altitude, and so I was kind of started to panic, and then went outside onto the balcony in this outside this hostel where I was staying and was kind of real you know really just gasping and heaving and trying to trying to catch my breath. And uh, it wasn't coming, and I was getting more and more anxious, which of course made it worse because my mm-hmm. heart was beating faster and faster. And I really thought that that you know, this was this was it. I mean, I don't know, I don't know if you've experienced not being able to breathe before, but it's a yes. pretty hideous thing. And um, but then you know, luckily I just calmed myself down somehow, took some huge deep breaths, and then um, things returned to normal slowly. But I was too scared to go back to sleep. And so what I did was I sat out there on this balcony and I picked up this book in Spanish, which was next to me. And it was uh, Crónica de una Muerte Anunciada by García Márquez, which is in it, the English title is Chronicle of a Death Foretold. Mm. And my Spanish was kind of mediocre at the time. And this, But García Márquez is quite, he's relatively easy to read while still being kind of native level, if you know what I mean. So I started reading. I found it really, really difficult to understand. But I, I wasn't going back to bed because I was too scared of just dying in my sleep, basically. So I kind of kept on reading and reading. And I didn't really understand a lot, but I just plowed through anyway. And then, uh, you know, a few hours later, went back to sleep. Woke up the next morning. And I was walking through the the, the tiny little streets of this mountain village in Argentina. And I, rem- I, did, I noticed that all these random words, these random Spanish words that I didn't know yesterday Mm. were popping into my head. I thought, this is weird. I normally find it quite difficult to remember uh, uh, words that I try to learn from from, from lists and in, in mm. books and stuff like that. But these words are just sticking. Why is that? And then I remembered it's because I just spent th- like three, four hours sat out reading this book in Spanish. And a lot more had gone in than I thought. Mm. So, then, uh, so then I started reading more. And so every night during that trip, I kept on reading and reading and reading. I finished the book. And then I headed back to Buenos Aires a few weeks later. And I noticed a massive transformation in, in my Spanish. I could understand so much more of what I was listening to, what people would say to me. Uh, I, I could speak in much longer, fuller, more flowing sentences. I had more words at my disposal. It was, it was really a kind of revolution, revolutionary experience. And and that was the that was the kind of moment that I realized, okay, beyond all of the traditional study that I'd been doing in, in the couple of years before that, in the space of a few weeks, just by reading, I've managed to just unlock this huge, um, this huge um, wealth of 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 
knowledge that was you know some of it was probably already inside my brain but others other other words phrases grammar and so on i'd learned from reading this book and so that was what kind of planted the seed in my in my head i see after that i went on to actually and i'm getting the chronology a little bit mixed up here but i went on to learn japanese and the problem with japanese is you can't read until you know a whole bunch of stuff so i couldn't use that method to learn japanese i had to do other stuff instead which is a whole other story so i kind of and then i was like just lost for a few years in asia not being able to read anything and and um and that so that kind of diverted me but then when i went back to thinking okay how do i how did i really learn eventually after starting my blog i kind of came back to this idea of story and so that's when i started writing these books of short stories because the 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 difficult thing for people is you know even if you want to read even if you buy into this idea of reading to learn a language you usually haven't you've got your kind of real basic beginner textbooks Mm -hmm. and you've got a few kind of crappy graded readers which are which are like Charles Dickens novels because they're the only ones out of copyright. Right. And they're just really boring. And then you've got nothing in between until you get to like native level. Yeah. We have kids fiction, books which is just, that are written for kids. kids so they're boring. Just, yeah. For kids. Yeah. yeah. And then it's very difficult to find good material at a kind of intermediate level that you can read in your target language. And so, so think, all these things suddenly started to make sense to me. So I started writing more of those books. They became incredibly popular. Um, and then I started to think to myself, well, now how can I actually, if I was going to teach someone a language from the beginning using story, how would I do it? And then so my my method started sort of evolving from that as I as I figured out how to how to do that. So it was um, it was always in there, but it was it was having the my blog and my website and the need to actually write and, and teach people, which kind of forced me to sort of confront the. The, the, the real beast and figure out how to tame it and what to do with it and a near-death Sorry, experience a long, a doesn't hurt i think and a, to... and a near-death experience, yeah. <laughs> what is it you think about stories that make them so uniquely powerful in from what i'm listening to what you're saying you know not only probably activating words phrases structures that you've already previously studied but didn't quite stick or, or they were still just kind of stuck at a conscious level. You couldn't really use them or understand them in real time. What do you think it is about stories that make that process more effective than just trying to memorize a, you know, list of words or, or as you were saying, you know, memorizing textbooks, like what is it about stories? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, the the broader point I think is context, right? So you're seeing words in, in context. It doesn't have to be stories. You know, it could be nonfiction. It could be self-help books, which are also great. It could be, you know, it could be any any number of things. But the thing about stories is that they grab you and they grab our attention. You know, right. we we all um, of, of everything that I've said in the last ten minutes, the thing that people are going to remember is the story about me being on top of the mountain. 100%. I mean, that I guarantee you, that's what's going to happen, and that's also why I tell the story. So you know, it's all you know, all baked in there. But <laughs> walking um, your talk. But we remember stories. We remember stories. I mean, the Bible is nothing but stories, right. which were t- which were told without being written down for a long, long time. And, I mean, a lot of people don't realize this, but the stories in the Bible were not, you know, contemporary beliefs that were just developed then and then put into words. I mean, those are like ancient. We we don't know how old those stories are. We don't know how far back into humanity. Right. I mean, some of them are probably pre-language in some ways, like parts of those stories. So. Yeah, nothing. They represent us, you know, human beings trying to make sense of the world around us, and so right. we are evolutionarily, evolutionarily speaking, we are hardwired to to think and understand through story. Mm-hmm. So when you go and then 
also when you think about how we learn our mother tongue how do we how do we learn well we're exposed obviously we've got language in the, in the home but then our parents read us stories mm. um when we go to sleep and that's how we form our view of the world so it's all there um it, it's all it all makes perfect sense you've got language that is in 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 context but not just any context the most powerful memorable context that there is um and the challenge is just kind of bridging the gap between between that the, the challenge is figuring out how to do that with a new language that you don't yet understand right right and so the thing about the stories are kind of a, a vehicle that it already makes sense to us that we intuitively understand um and and so we're not trying to you know, foist some harebrained new crazy method on people. Would and what I'm saying is, hey, let, I'm 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 going back to the the medium, the 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 thing that you most intuitively understand, which is the story, and I'm sort of couching this new language in that story, in this concept, which just makes it a very nativist thing, right right from the beginning. Um, and th- and there are other there are many other interesting things to point out you know such such as the idea that you know when you hear a story being told the same parts of your brain fire up as would fire up if you had lived that that story yourself that you're reading right right and so the kind of it doesn't it's it's fairly self-evident how you know if your brain if your brain is firing in an experiential way whilst you're learning a new language it's only going to become more memorable to you indeed right and you know we go on and on with 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 that, but um, yeah, there's that quote, right? You know, tell me I forget, involve me, and I remember, whatever. And, and I think a lot of that, you know, the truth is that a lot of that is kind of is quite opaque to us. You know, we don't understand really very well how memories, dreams, oh, yeah. of the brain, the brain works. It's a black box in and, many ways. And it's always an interesting thing with language learning, and this is why I think people can get away with all kinds of claims with language learning. It's like, okay, prove that this works. Well, you can't. Right. Um, you can't you can't prove that any of this stuff works because these big big studies, you know, the, the best we've got with language learning really is big longitudinal studies that sort of comp- that, that look at a method a particular method that's being u- that's been used in a class of st- school kids over a period of years and then seeing how their language develops. I mean, right. it's just it's it's, it's incredibly. I mean, there's just so much in there that you can't control. Yeah, there's so many confounders. It's like it's in a classroom environment. There's all of these people. Most of the time is probably spent in the first language talking about the second language. I mean, with zero motivation and yeah, um, yeah already a sort of suboptimal um, in, in environment to learn. And the other so, thing is, how do you but, isolate but, the, the the to your point? How do you isolate which variable that you're trying to test while at the same time realizing like no one thing is going to be the thing. It's going to be some combinatory holistic, you know, amalgamation of lots of different things like. You know, yeah. no one's going to learn a language only by reading a story, even though a story is very powerful. To your point, it's yeah. you read that story, but then you went out into the city and you talked to people and you read signs and you ordered food, you know, and it was probably that yeah. synthesis of those two things that really it, like, yeah. brought it home. I think there are, I think there are, there are certain things that we can, you know, we can say are true with language learning and, you know, you can probably add a few things here to this as well. But I mean, huge amount of time with the language. You also need to be motivated to learn it because without motivation, you won't learn a thing. You also need to have lots, spend lots of time right. actually using actively the, the language, mm-hmm. which means lots of time speaking it. You cannot, it doesn't matter if you spend a lifetime listening, 
you won't be able to speak right. unless you spend lots of time doing. You know, so there are lots of these kind of variables, and um, I think right. the challenge is really how do you get as many of those variables right within the context that you've got to work with. And uh, the, you know, I think the difficulty with school is that you're dealt a, a bad hand from the beginning. You know, you've got forty kids, forty kids who don't care in a room, and two hours a week. Like, what do you do with that? It's it's tough. Um, trap. which makes it kind of ridiculous to study that environment and 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 try to deduce from that the best language learning method it doesn't make any sense uh, and test it it's hard to test it <laughs> exactly if you were a school best, teacher you can probably deduce what is the best language learning method for that context but for for you and i and for our listeners yeah we're, we're independent learners our, our listeners are independent learners mostly like they want to know I don't care how it works in the classroom. What can I do as Joe Blow in Kansas that wants to learn Japanese? Like, That's an interesting perspective that people like you and me have, uh, because by being bloggers, podcasters, whatever, we actually come into contact with huge numbers of uh, language learners, independent language learners around the world. Right? And so one of, the, one of the things that's kind of led to the stuff that I've been developing, the story-based books and courses, is that you know, from podcasting and from blogging and, you know, running Facebook groups and meeting, doing meetups and talking to people and all, all these different data points over so many years, I start to sort of see what real people struggle with. So real people who are learning independently, what, what does, what does the independent language learner with a job and a family and, um, you know, all kinds of other stuff going on to contend with what, what is their actual experience of language learning on a, you know, out in the real world. And that, I mean, I don't know. Would, I, don't, I don't know if that's the kind of a typical language learning experience or not. I guess it's not, right? Most people take classes and stuff. Yeah. But I guess at best, what I, what I can say is that, you know, I, I try to make I try to make stuff which is helpful to people who are learning languages by themselves based on the tens of thousands of people who I've interacted with who are learning languages by themselves and what they've said to me. Yeah, it's hard to say is that just the way more and more people are learning or is it that we've filtered out the people that are learning the traditional way and we're just only attracting and interacting with people that are mm-hmm. wanting to learn the way that we're espousing? It's sort of a, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's a kind of, there's a kind of guiding light with this, which is often when you have these conversations, but you know, how to learn a language, I think you have, to, it makes sense to start with and to kind of take as your, as your um, gold standard, people who have actually learned lots of languages. I mean, I can't think of a better place to start. Mm-hmm. I certainly wouldn't start with some 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 method that's been put together based on classroom teaching or or, or research or whatever. If the question is, and which this is usually most people's question, starting out is, like, what's the best way to learn a language? Yeah. Right? Okay. Well, if we're going to answer that question, the first thing we should do is go and talk to people who have actually learned lots of languages. Right. And then we can start to look for commonalities among those people. And then I think you can work your way back from there because one of the problems you run into, like you, so you speak to a, you know, a, a Richard Simcott with 50 plus languages, probably a hundred plus languages by now. I don't know. And then, and you could look at that and say, okay, well that's how you learn a language. But then your immediate problem is, well, most people are not as crazy as him um, <laughs> with, with not nowhere near as much motivation to learn languages as him. Right or the environment that he has, or the natural talent that he has, or any number of things. So 
immediately, if you're talking about you know your average guy on the street, you're starting from a sort of suboptimal point. Right. And even, yeah. So, and so you, you kind of got to, then you've got to make the best of whatever particular hand you've been dealt and everyone's got a different situation. You know, I'm quite good at some aspects of language learning, but really bad at others. Mm-hmm. Likewise. And so I kind of play to my strengths in a lot of ways. And there's a reason that I don't, there's a reason that I take Japanese, for example. There's a reason my Japanese isn't a lot better than it is, which is because I've never really being able to master the the long-term stamina to learn to read and it is a it is for shame but it is what it is well i would ask you the question do you you know what's your why for japanese and if it's just i want to be able to speak japanese or read japanese because i think it's cool or it's an interesting culture and language you know maybe that's part of the the root yeah see one of the things i've been wondering i've been thinking a lot recently about language learning and age because i am partly through circumstance but partly through i don't know probably a combination of things i am nowhere near as excited or motivated to learn languages as i was when i was 21 mm. right i mean if you if you met me when i was 21 learning languages you would be like my god this guy like where's this all this energy come from <laughs> yeah. you know i was just like discovering the world for the first time meeting all these people from spain and italy brazil south america france like i want to speak their languages and like, every spare moment i had would have been with language books right I don't like any form of study now. I don't like doing anything other than the stuff that I know I enjoy, which is basically speaking to people, watching TV in the language. Like that's about it. But that's also whether by design or fortune, those are probably the most effective things to do anyway. So, <laughs> you know, in terms of yeah, like minute for minute, you know. Sure, but then I mean, so then I, this is, I mean, I find this really, really fascinating. So with with japanese because like i keep going back to japanese because it's like for me it's like it is a it's the white world and it's funny because you know so a few days ago i I met a friend in in london japanese friend and we spent the entire afternoon just talking about stuff in japanese like not a word of english so i can i can i have a kind of very active social life in japanese and speak all day long with nothing really more than the occasional eh, you know (laughs) and I, i love nothing that's not my favorite thing in the world but I am really aware, of, because I generally have high standards for myself for language learning, I'm just like super aware of, my, of the kind of glass ceiling that I'm knocking up against, right? And so then I think to myself, right, well, what, what if I'd got into Japanese when I was like 21? And then I go on YouTube and I see all these young kids, they're not kids, young adults, generally yeah, very early 20s, yeah. with YouTube channels about Japanese you know, vlogging about Japanese, blogging about Japanese, all these crazy methods, you know, the kind of the all Japanese all the time clique, right. all, all of that stuff. And it's like, I'm blown away by these guys. Like there's one guy, Matt, Matt versus Japan, who I just, uh, I, I just, he's just incredible. His Japanese is unbelievable. And the stuff that he talks about on a very deep level, I think is, is incredibly true. But how would someone who's not in that particular situation, and I, I, I'm guessing here, so I might get it wrong, but I'm guessing like mm-hmm. early 20s, living in Japan. By, I don't know if he, does he live in Japan? I don't know. Living it in a, so, either, yeah. in, either in Japan or in a totally Japanese environment, like doing right. nothing but all Japanese all the time, like listening to hours and hours of Japanese. Like how do you do that from a practical point of view, but from a motivational point of view, unless you are at, in that kind of scenario? I don't know, mm-hmm. I, but I find myself now so far away from that that I I kind of struggle to think about how I how I can bridge that gap 
because I yeah because it's not something I want to do. So mm. I, I think well would the Ollie would the twenty one year old Ollie have, have like gone at this at Japanese kanji like a bull in a china shop and just <laughs> ripped apart the whole thing in a matter of months? Mm. And I think I probably would have done because mm. that's you know such was the level of energy I had at that age. And now I don't, which is not just I couldn't get it back. You know, but my life is now. You what also it is. have a, you have a, a business. You have employees. You have a daughter. Like you've got a lot of things now in your life that are probably increasingly important for you as a priority than just languages too. So that's I think that to be fair to yourself, you know, it's apples yeah. and oranges here. And yeah. I think something that like the psychological literature does definitely talk a lot about is that our openness to experience does tend to decrease with age. And so I think the curiosity and probably the drive to dig into these other languages and cultures to that level mm. probably does decrease somewhat. I mean, I, I, just, I find myself as just as curious as ever. I just, don't just feel like my curiosity. Yeah. And I'm looking at it. Don't get me wrong. Man. I, I read business articles every day in Japanese. Like, right. That's something I like to do. You know, I was just, just this morning, I spent an hour with a, an article on the top 10 technology trends to look out for in, in in 2020 so I, mean, I do read at a fairly good level but there's still this just volume of stuff which i i i, I don't get and i mean i'm gonna go off on loads of tangents here so feel free to this is the, this is the the other name of the show in. is the, the tangent show with right john so and friends so rem me back in wherever you like it but um so i'm in that kind of situation i enjoy learning reading reading japanese and then i think to myself well what would i have to do to learn kanji to the level where I'm a fluent reader in Japanese. That's two schools of thought with this. School of thought number one, uh, which I happen to believe is true, although the fact that I haven't done it means that I don't give that opinion any, it doesn't hold any water whatsoever. But I think that the correct thing to do is just to read and read and read and read and read. And in about 10 years, I'll know everything. Uh, and literally not to worry about it, just read and read and let context do right. the work. The other school of thought is, right, high sig, mnemonics, whatever yeah. you know way you want to kind of hack those characters into your brain in a very kind of piecemeal uncontextualized memorized way i'm not going to do that because i don't have that i've never enjoyed that kind of learning at all and i don't think it's doesn't fit with my my way of thinking about languages so I'm, i know i'm not going to do that i've tried a few times and i, I just not, i'm not mm-hmm. going to do it but then the kind of 10 read for 10 year thing i know for a fact it would work that's like man I, is there I a hybrid? Time for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, probably it's the false dichotomy. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So this is the, the tyranny of or, right? Is it do I do this or yeah. this? Um, right. What about you know? Could you do both? Yeah, I think you could, but then you're just splitting your attention, and I've only really got yeah. time for one thing. <laughs> sure. I know for a fact that the more complicated I make things, the less you know, the less chances it has of being being successful. Right. So the less fun it um, is. And from your point, you like right. the reading part for reading's sake. So, yeah. So you know, the kind of middle ground I've ended up at is that I, you know I speak Japanese a fair amount and I enjoy every minute of it. I try to keep up my reading as much as possible, which I enjoy. And I'm just trying to be a little bit, go a little bit easier on myself and just allow myself not to be perfect. Um, yeah. Hard and to do. Allow myself to be actually fairly mediocre and underwhelming and uh, <laughs> just try to try to be cool with that and man it's hard yeah. but but it's i don't think i don't have another choice at the moment really because like i said you know family and work pretty much occupies all of my wells of um attention and willpower and focus it sounds like a healthy place to be you know to have that kind of acceptance and not no longer chasing that high of perfection 
I mean, this is something I've definitely done a lot of work on in the last few years, especially, and especially the last six months, is really admitting to myself that perfectionism is not benign. And it's it's not it's not ideal nor benign. And realizing how much strife I have created for myself in my life by by chasing it, whether it's in languages, in my own business, in relationships. Um, and one of my favorite quotes is from Elizabeth Gilbert. She talks about becoming a disciplined half-asser. You know, rig the game to win, right? If it's in the context of language learning, like it's not success means you've read an entire article, you know, in the, you know, Asahi Shimbun. And it's not you had a two-hour conversation. It's maybe you listened to one minute of a podcast and maybe had one conversation a week with a tutor. It's like setting the bar as low as possible to reach some like minimum viable progress. That's kind of where I'm, I'm at. Now. Yeah. I've, I've flirted with that before, but I find that I could, then you kind of into the soft bigotry of low expectations. Which I think is a great phrase. Yes. Um, I maybe, and I think it's up to each person to figure out what works for them. But for myself, I know that, when I set that bar low and I rig the game to win, I inevitably end up doing much more than I would otherwise. Because for myself, my pattern yeah, is yeah. I set the bar high and then it's either I'm all on or I'm all off. Yeah. And more often off than on. So I don't right. even start. Which is the, the you know, a good analogy there would be the parallel with intermittent fasting. Right? So the big criticism of intermittent fasting being that well, yes, it's effective, but for many people, the byproduct is you end up binging. So you have this, end up in this yo-yo mm-hmm. situation where you stick mm-hmm. to intermittent fasting for a period of time and do really well. But then you just grind yourself down to the ground and then binge for a, for, for a week and just confuse the hell out of your body yeah. and end up making negative progress because your body's like, well, hang on, what's going on here? Um, and so, like, you know, the what is the best plan is the one that you stick to? Yeah. Yeah, Tim Ferriss is, you know, the imperfect diet you stick to is better than the perfect diet you quit right there you go yeah 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 so 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 I th- yeah i think that's definitely true and that's i mean that's I, I teach that for sure but i also think it's possible to sell oneself short by by saying we'll just do five minutes a day come on let's be honest if you do five minutes a day you're not going anywhere yeah and, and you're not going to get fluent to anytime fast it's important to acknowledge that you know as, sure. again assuming that the goal here is actual you know trying to make real progress 100 percent. as soon as you say look i'm just doing this to enjoy myself then all bets are off and yeah. anything any answer is the, is the right one and that's fine too i mean i i do think it's important mm-hmm. for people to remember like you don't need to learn a language one two you don't need to be you know ollie richards or you know richard yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely you don't want to be a john father and ham i assure you of that uh, but if it is your goal to get to fluency, then yes, there are many, as you already talked about, there are many of these kind of preconditions that you need to meet in terms of like quantity and quality of exposure and practice. Part of this thing of setting that bar low and, and hitting those daily sort of minimum viable habits, I want to be really clear too that that's, I think, mostly a thing to do in the beginning. It's the James Clear thing of you're developing the habit first. If you're trying to start working out, don't commit to going to the gym an hour a day. Your goal, your first habit is actually just going to the gym, period, full stop. And then once you develop that habit, now we can start focusing on actually the working out part. And so on that basis, I have to, you know, 
when I'm talking about the things that I'm prepared to do or the or whatever for my languages, I kind of have to couch that in terms of twenty years of exactly of history, you're, right? So, you're an old hat. Yeah. I mean, I think I would tell someone. I mean, someone who's just getting started. I do find that people lowball it a little bit too much. I think there's a general unrealistic expectation around just how much work it is to learn a language. And so Absolutely. when I when I see people preaching like just do five minutes a day, and you no no no, well, it's marketing. No. It's the apps they're trying to get no, you. But, to, but I don't. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I mean, don't, don't get me started on apps. But <laughs> but I mean, but just in general, you know, I, I think I think it's just a reality check is important because. Because people do, people do get frustrated and, um, and and very unhappy with themselves when they don't make make progress in language learning. Now that's that's the that's the flip side. It's like yes, you can do five minutes a day and just get started and enjoy yourself, fine. But then if you like, as I do, regularly meet people who are like, man, look, I've, there's a lot at stake for me now. I want to emigrate right. to Germany, or I've got to pass right. my IELTS test so I can get to university in Canada. Like, there's a lot at stake. And I feel like I'm doing people a disservice by trying to claim that 15 minutes a day is going to get them into into Canada, passing their IELTS with right. 7.5. And it's not going to happen. Right. Right. So I do I do feel like it's important to sort of um, talk up the the idea of hard work. And I mean, the, the thing in my, like in my courses, I I put this front and center, right? So in my beginner courses, I because you're learning through story, right? And so the very first thing you do as a complete, assuming a zero beginner in, in, in the language, the very first thing you do is I get you to read an entire chapter of a story in the language. You read it and then you'll listen to it. Right? Now imagine you're learning a language like Japanese and I give you an entire chapter of a book to read in Japanese or to listen to. I mean, obviously you don't understand a thing, right? Mm-hmm. But I give you that right at the beginning to say, look, this is what we're dealing with. Get used to it. Mm-hmm. Because if you can get used to it, then and then you keep it up over the duration of the course then you're going to you're going to have some serious a seriously good baseline um by the end so then i get you to read it again and read it again and then listen again and listen again and then what happens is with every kind of little repetition little things start to fit into place you notice more you know so I, i'm kind of like I'm, I'm taking the opposite approach from a duolingo where you just have to kind of tap things and and lights go off and stuff like that you know it it's it's really from the beginning I'm kind of like using it as a as a filtering mechanism, so that if you if you if you're looking for something that's just a bit of fun, which is fine, best you go elsewhere. You know, this is this is if you come and learn with me, you know, you're gonna get the kind of the, the hosepipe treatment mm-hmm. from from the beginning. You know, you're gonna get thrown right in the deep end. So you, when you were in Japan, learned to to read kanji, right? Uh, in college, actually, before I started. Oh, in college? Okay, wow, okay. Yeah, so I, I majored in, in linguistics, and then Japanese was my focus as part of oh, right. So degree. You were, you're one of the and lucky I, people with the University Plus Japan experience. Yeah, it, well, it's lucky, and in another way, it's a little bit frustrating to me in that I will never know what percentage of the abilities I developed were were what I did in school and how much was what I you know, doing the stuff I now advocate, uh, right. the immersion-based kind of learning. Um, I do know, of course, because I've now applied that same method to additional languages, like now I'm learning Spanish, for example, doing the kind of things I talk about. Um, but one thing I do know for sure, com- if I compare myself to a lot of the other students that were in my classes, I yes, I, I mean, I think I was a good student and I did work hard, 
But <laughs> one of the things I actually started doing, especially as I got into like 200 and 300 level Japanese, I would actually sometimes ditch class and go talk to the Japanese exchange students that were out in the kind of main square mm-hmm. at my university. And that, I think, really accelerated my learning. Had I, had I just stuck with the class and the academic study, not only I think would have been taking a lot more time and frustration, but I think when I got to Japan as part of the JET program my first year after I graduated, and I was stuck in a very tiny town miles away from other English speakers, I think that would have been a much rougher year. I was able to go from kind of broken conversational Japanese to basically spoken fluency, like in mm. probably about six months, given that. so. And how did you, so you at, at, at some point had to learn all of the Joyo kanji, the 2000 yeah. 100 or now so. it's 2136, I think is the current kanji. How did those 2100 or, and whatever kanji kind of, map onto your the years in which you were learning Japanese? Did you learn them all in college or did you learn them later when you got to Japan? I did learn them all in college. I did use remembering the kanji. Um, my school, actually, to their credit, they actually had a sort of a little adjunct class um, that went through remembering the kanji. And wow. I say went through it. <laughs> it was self-study completely. You just showed yeah. up once a week. Oh, that's and then he'd give you the test for the 50 kanji for that week. He would literally just give you the 50 head words in English, and then you had to write the kanji that had that that basic English meaning. 50 so a week. Like 50, that's a, that's 50 a fair... Week. Yeah, that is a lot. Um, and I don't know if I would advocate that volume to somebody learning on their own without sort of this grade-based checkpoint every week to do it for, plus a full-time study schedule being a college student. But you, but you know, you think you really know that you're learning when you do that, don't you? Mm-hmm. You can track the the fact that you you, you know you, you know that you're learning one after the next well, until the point where you just get horribly confused, <laughs> which didn't to me. And I know I know that remembering the kanji is kind of one of the it's like the pet controversial topics in the Japanese yeah. learning world. Like people yeah. swear by it or they hate it. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of in the middle. Like I I think it's fantastic. It worked for me, um, and I do advocate it, but. It's a little bit of a, a nuanced position because, like you, I do think that m- spending most of your time in a highly contextual, input-based, authentic content world is going to be much more fun and effective in general. But this is sort of a little exception I have, a little caveat, which is I think when it comes to learning kanji, because you can go through the Heisig method if you go about it right in a few months, you can just actually learn the meaning of all the, you know, the Joyo kanji, the common use characters, you can kind of just get that out of the way. And that's got a little checkbox. Like, will you know every meaning of those characters? No. Will you know how to pronounce those characters yet? No. But that's okay. It's like, as he talks about in the introduction to the book, you now are then like a native Mandarin speaker who's coming to Japan to learn Japanese. Mm. You already know the meaning and basically the writing of of all the standard characters all you have to do then is learn them in context how they're pronounced so that's kind of my little position yeah on it, so my i mean i've had a few cracks at that that particular whip and my um my experience was always that i kind of i started i'm super good for a few weeks and then i just run out of steam after like i've done like you know a few hundred and yeah. and i just i can't take it anymore and, and inevitably i've sort of skipped some of the the important steps of forming mnemonics for some of the kind of key pieces right. uh, and then and then all the kanji start to merge into one another yeah 
And that's, I had the same experience. So I, I kind of, I, I, I'm with you up until the point where you can, where you say you can learn them all in a few months because it's not a, it's not a constant experience throughout. You know, your first couple of hundred or so are fairly easy and exciting, yeah. but then it very quickly gets a lot denser. It's like yeah. You can't yeah. keep up that pace, and you need. I mean, certainly, what I seems to me like superhuman amounts of dedication to kind of get through that. But if I was going to think of, a, of an ideal environment in which to do that, it would be a weekly college class where everyone turns up and you kind of had this rhythm to stick to. But my question was, which I'm finally going to get to now, um, what would you do if you were starting from zero today and you had to learn all the kanji? Knowing what you know, knowing everything you know. Yeah, that is a really good question. Um, at, at, you know, at you know, our age and right. our, our point in life and, you know, given all current levels of motivation and mm-hmm. – I'm tempted to say I would do the same, but I want to really think about that for a minute and, and think that would be true. Um, okay. One thing I have changed my mind on, actually, Benny Lewis, he, he, he made this point when he was doing his Japanese mission, which I know is also another controversial thing. Um, he made the point that for most people today, they don't probably ever really need to write out kanji by hand, for example. It's all going to be typed on on your smartphone or on a computer using English letters for the vast majority of people. And that is a part of remembering the kanji is that you are learning how to write them by hand, which I quite enjoy. I, I have a background in, in art and in drawing. So that part of Japanese was always very attractive to me inherently. But most people probably don't have that same love of calligraphy as I, and they probably won't need to write by hand. So I wonder in terms of like efficiency and sort of 80-20 rule of focusing on the 20% of things that are going to get you 80% of the benefit in a language, especially like Japanese, probably that's extraneous. Probably that is a waste of time. So I would probably still... Do you really think so? I don't know. I mean, mean, do you not, do do you or did you not find that writing helps focus your attention on the compounds? Yes. I mean, there is something to be said for the muscle memory. I know, you know, in ESL, you know, this idea of total physical response of using your body as you're learning something kind of helps things stick a little better. Um, absolutely. That's true. But I don't know. I, well, my hypothesis is that in terms of memory, if we were to make a little pie chart about this, probably physically writing the characters is like 10%. I think this just, oh, this is all just a guess, but by 10%, I think the mnemonics are probably 70% for me at least. And then maybe the other bit is like, exposure and context so um i really think the mnemonics that's something i definitely i will like fight to the mat for that people absolutely 100 (laughs) percent are setting themselves up for a very frustrating inefficient process if they try to memorize kanji through rote memory just like staring at it flipping the page over and trying to write it out by memory i think that's it's what most people do. It's what most Japanese people do. That's how most yeah. children learn the characters. And so then they think, oh, they did it that way, so we should do it this way. It's like, no, that's... Well, they, that's also, an- they also have 15 years of kanji tests at school and, uh, and, and writing up by hand. And- yes, but this is my hypothesis again. I think if you were to have those kids create stories, which is what a mnemonic is, right? It's a little story of how to remember the, the character. Instead of trying to remember individual strokes, you're remembering... A story and the story is made with characters and a scene that's based on the radicals or the little chunks that make up the kanji right so i think if we were to teach that method to japanese children 
I think they would learn many times faster. Not yeah. as fast as adults, though, because they don't yet have the same cognitive abilities. They, they don't have the same power of association. They don't have as much life experience to attach. They don't. To or, but if you think about the peripheral activities, you know, they would learn like 10 new kanji and then they would they go out and they spend the rest everywhere. of their days and exactly. weeks actually studying and reading it. So, right, right. I mean, I, I guess what, it's what different. I, yeah. Well, my, my overall feeling with this is that, you know, even the bluntest tool will win eventually given the, the, the you know, the requisite amount of persistence and, and strength. Sure. Right? 21 year old Ollie could learn kanji right. rote, 20, rote. If, 21 yeah. year old Ollie, like drunk and learning kanji by rote <laughs> flashcards would, would yeah. have made more progress than me just through pure stubbornness. Yeah. 100%. One, because yeah. the level of motivation would have been so, 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 so high. Right. So, Yeah. Honestly, I don't, and this is something I've definitely, I've started saying this phrase a lot more now that I'm 40. I don't know. I don't know. Um, Good for you. <laughs> that's taken, you know, four decades of humility and, and banishing my my male hubris and ego. But um, yeah, I don't know. But I, I do, I think it would probably look pretty similar. Um, I definitely, to your point, would probably use a lot more story now. Um, I'd probably try to start seeing those kanji more in authentic story narrative yeah. based content earlier yeah. on. We're coming out with a book of Japanese stories, by the way. I finally got approval from, you um, are. from, from teacher stuff. Yeah. It's that going to be intermediate exciting. though. We're going straight to intermediate. We're going to skip the beginner because the beginner is a little bit hard to do for obvious reasons. Yeah. So we're going straight to intermediate. That's exciting. Yeah. Cause we talked about this uh, a few months back, I think, uh, you said you you're you're having a hard time convincing them to do Japanese, so that's that's yeah. It's, it's funny behind the scenes of you know, the publishing industry is a real funny one. You know, when you sort of see it from the inside, there's all kinds of things which you would think would be obvious, but are just not. But yeah, we we are 99 percent of the way there. There's still a chance awesome. that it won't happen, but we actually we even have people in place now to 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 work on those. So this has been my pet like ever since the beginning of this yeah. this 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 project. I, my whole my whole ambition. I would sacrifice every single book. <laughs> To have a Japanese one out because I just Amazing. I just feel like it's like, you know, it's a I just, yeah it has to be done because well, I, cool. I, I, again on your I can see on your shelf behind you the read real Japanese mm -hmm. series okay, probably a lot easier if you know all the kanji I, I grant you that but but um, that's an, that's for me a really good example of material which is going to be really great for certain people but for the vast majority of people completely inaccessible because it's it's like native level. Um, it's so it's it's parallel texts, right? So you've got the the, the Japanese right. and then the and the English translation with some notes, but it's so hard for anyone who's not a kind of upper intermediate learner with N two level kanji that Absolutely. as certainly in my experience has to be virtually unusable. And that yeah. and just despite being beautifully produced and beautifully made with lots of lots of love and all of that, right. and so I just for me there's just a huge gaping hole for real practical usable material. Yeah, in that middle. Yeah, yeah, beginning and middle, definitely, for for stories, yeah. Um, yeah, I in my experience, the difficulty of things like that, it was less about the kanji. I mean, that's because I already had... You knew them. Kind of, I checked <laughs> that box, sort of. But um, it's the fact that this is authentic literature, this authentic Japanese literature written by and for native Japanese speakers. And yeah. so as you do in a language, when you're trying to write something that's of that register or level it's going to be a lot more nuanced and literary and poetic and 
So even if you know the meaning of every single kanji and every single word and every single construction, it doesn't mean you still understand what they're getting at exactly. Yeah. For, that, for, the, the f- for the exact reason that, you know, reaching, perfect, reaching re- true fluency, native-like fluency in a language is so damn difficult because that yeah. last 5%, you know, you can get 95%, but that yeah. last 5% is more work than the other 95% can, you know, put together yeah. because of the, the level of nuance. and the, Right. Uh, yeah. On that note, I would much rather invest my time now in learning additional languages, getting that little learning curve. I, I love the feeling, as I'm sure you do, like that first part where you go from zero to like 100 words. It's it's all downhill from there, though. It is. Well, it's all you, you never, from there. But. <laughs> you never, you never, yeah, but I mean, like yeah. that feeling, of, you know, your first, just wrapping your tongue around the first conversation yeah. in a new language. I mean, that's just like, it's just, it's ecstasy, it's isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. So I'm learning Spanish now. That's kind of my, my main focus on like a new language. Um, I I had done French in high school. So Spanish actually is like pretty much brand new to me. I mean, I've dabbled in it a little bit off and on over the years, but never really grabbed it with both hands and sunk my teeth into it. So that's that's what I'm doing now with the hope slash anticipation of going to the polyglot conference in mexico this october so are you going do you think i don't think so it's not good timing and it's a very long way away (laughs) it is indeed uh so we'll see we'll see what happens but that's that's the hope so i have i have that as a why or as a kind of a tangible goal is an actual reason to use it um then after that um i'm not yet sure part of me has always wanted to go back to french and really give it a, a full go doing things the way I know how to do things now. Um, Cause I did have, you know, I had two years in high school, which I would say probably counts for like a month of doing things the way that you probably, you and I do them now. Um, I did do a little French mini kind of mission a few summers ago. My older brother and his now wife had their uh, sort of wedding ceremony in France. She's French Swiss. So I learned, I kind of spent about a month hitting that pretty hard just to the point where I could have, basic conversations while I was there. Um, so I'm still, that's kind of an open loop going back and filling in French more Portuguese, which was actually my first exposure to a foreign language. When I was 12, I went and did a two week homestay in Brazil. Okay. Um, and didn't actually learn Portuguese at that time. I learned like five words or something. Um, but that's always had a kind of soft spot in my heart because it's, it was my first exposure to people that, are not from where I'm from and don't speak English. And, uh, yeah, that's always been in there. So say, say that you say that you did speak Portuguese or Spanish or French, uh, take your pick fluently now. So I, I wave a magic wand and I, and I mm-hmm. bestow fluency in one of those languages upon you. Um, what would you do with it at this point? Honestly, it would just be travel, travel and, and probably reading content from those cultures um is that something well, you think you'd sit down and do for, for fun yeah i mean, I love reading period i mean yeah. i do it every day anyway and i think being able to just both learn and improve a language while also just reading for reading's sake is always something i i think is a, a nice goal to have in any language um, yeah, it's, it's something i've struggled with recently and it's kind of made me realize maybe come to terms with, with why I really wanted to learn languages in the first place, because I've, I've done a fair bit of language learning in the last few years, but it's always kind of ended up at this, 
this this struggle for me, like like knowing exactly what it's for. Yeah. So you know, a couple of years ago, I, I well, a year and a half ago, I saw I did a, like an Italian summer project. So I learned mm-hmm. Italian in three months, and I documented the whole thing on YouTube. You can go on there and like, see my like week weekly progress from like zero to or you know mostly zero through to um to to, to where I got. And uh, my whole reason for doing it was that you know I keep meeting loads of Italians in London, and I thought, well, if I speak Italian, I'd be able to sort of talk with them. And, um, and so I spent all this time learning Italian and then I kind of, I, I started doing different things in my life a little bit and I then suddenly didn't meet Italians anymore. And I've kind of, and then, and I, I don't really, I don't really, um, I will read stuff in Italian or watch movies in Italian, but only if I have to, mm. you know, like the free time that I have, I, I don't want to be pushing. I like, it's like, it's for nourishment in English that I really want, I think rather than I want to do things without, like I spend my whole day kind of striving at stuff and right. pushing my, pushing my brain. You know, I, I don't really, I don't really get excited by the prospect of like, you know, every night sitting down and reading stuff in Italian. I would That's have done, okay. I would yeah. have done like 15 years ago or so, 10 yeah. to 15 years ago, maybe even five years ago, but I just, I just don't anymore. And, I think I just kind of come into terms with the fact that maybe it's kind of funny thing to realize, but you know, sometimes it takes a bit of a hard right turn for you to kind of realize what the true nature of something is. I'm just wondering, you know, maybe all I ever really wanted to do was just talk to people. And if I don't have people to talk Mm to, I don't care. I don't know. Mm. Maybe that's (laughs) the reality of me and, and, and languages. It's a kind of cloud, something of a cloud hanging over me at the moment because I think about other languages that I really want to learn. I'd love to learn Swedish, mm. but then I but then I start to think to myself, okay, well, let's say that I spend, you know, six months learning Swedish. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's horribly ambitious. Maybe it would be you know, two years. I don't know. Whatever. Let's say I, I take the, the requisite time to learn Swedish. I I'm not convinced that I wouldn't just let it go after that. Yeah. Through lack of any real enticing environment i mean i could take a couple of trips to sweden but that's like that's not enough for me you know yeah man i mean i i think it's okay i think this is probably part of maturity is realizing like well that to your point earlier like you're not 21 year old you you have a family and you have a business and you still love languages and you're still doing a lot in languages but you're doing the things you're doing now in those languages is because you either love those cultures or you have friends that happen to speak those languages. I'm sure the friend that you talked to the other day, if they happen to be an Italian speaker, you would want to spend more time in Italian so you could talk to that person. Yeah, and funnily, funnily enough, I've met a couple of friends recently who do speak to an Italian, and it's great. I get a huge buzz from from speaking it, and like because I haven't spoken it much for the last year, and then I meet these guys and I sort of speak, and I kind of catch myself mid sentence, and Shit, I'm speaking Italian, and this is cool, <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I get a real kind of buzz from that. So when I'm there in the situation, I really, I really, really enjoy it. I don't know, it's just kind of funny. I'm just kind of thinking out loud, and um, yeah, I think especially for someone like you or maybe myself, is so much of our identity for so long has been we are, you know, you're Ollie the language guy, yeah, you know. Um, and probably, you know, you're Ollie the musician and, you know, Ollie the teacher. And now you're Ollie the author. We have these identities. I mean, I've gone through this many times already, as you know, with language and with my other passions like nutrition. I got really, really into nutrition. The last five years of my career was focused on nutrition. Um, so I met my wife. We met in our nutrition class. 
um heard you? I do now. <laughs> that's cool you didn't know that no no yeah. no i didn't know yeah that. we no. met so I, mean, I knew you were both did, into it but i didn't realize you met in yeah. class so we both did this nine that wasn't the reason sir, you, that wasn't the reason you went to class was it no somewhat so actually for both of us this is very interesting i had kind of come to a point in my life i was 34 at that time and i was like kind of had to resign myself to the fact, you know what, maybe I'm just not going to get married. I'm just going to be the cool uncle and that's okay. And I was ready to just focus on pursuing what made me feel fulfilled and feel like I was living out my my calling. And so I was getting more and more into nutrition. I thought, let's do it. Let's like, I'm going to make a career out of this. So I found the certification program. They had, it was nine months long. And then within that, you had three different in-person workshops. And so first day of workshop one, sitting in the class, we all give our little two minute introduction about why we're there, you know, how we got into nutrition. And my now wife, like she stood up, gave her a little two minute introduction and it was like everything else fell away. I only saw her. I mean, first break when we had, you know, went back to the back to get coffee and stuff. It was like a beeline to, to talk to her. And actually one of the things I still remember that, you know, piqued my interest is that she talked about how she lived abroad and had learned Russian or had started learning Russian. So there you go again, the, the language connection there. But anyway, the, where I was going with all this is that as I got more and more nutrition, as you know, I put language mastery and my language learning as well on hold multiple times for yeah. either months at a time or even years at a time. Uh, great way to build an audience, by the way, is to uh, ignore them completely for, <laughs> you know, two laps of the sun. Sorry, guys. Thanks for sticking with us, those that have. But anyway, um, I think just that being honest with yourself about letting go maybe of certain identities. I, I in my mind, was I'm John the language guy. And then as I got more into my nutrition, I had to sometimes pause and actually ask myself, am I still John the language guy or am I John the nutrition guy? Or maybe I can be both. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. And that's okay. I mean, I used to be John the the artist guy in junior high and high school. And then I was John the mountain bike guy. And then I was John the martial artist guy. And though, so I've, I've worn a lot of identities and um, maybe also part of getting older too is not thinking I need to have necessarily an identity. Or, yeah. But I think language is language is so tied up in identity that to ignore it is um, not to be truthful. So, so much of the, the difficulties that people have around speaking, for example, or interacting with people in a different language, it comes that comes down to your your identity or your self image, right? And I think I think a lot of the, a lot of the reasons that people struggle or have a hard time when they're first learning a new, a new language is because they they haven't they have to come to terms with looking like a stupid kid when they speak yeah which is something they haven't felt since they were a teenager right so right. you know since you're at school you can you learn to be articulate and mature and you know present yourself properly carry yourself well in the world as an adult mm-hmm. and then you you know you open your mouth in, in a foreign language and suddenly you're made to feel completely insignificant again and that's right. a very difficult feeling to come to terms with yes and so uh, you can't have this conversation without also at least acknowledging identity and um, and maybe identity is not the word. At least not in the kind of you know the, the sense that identity is used a lot these days. But um, self image for sure, self confidence. Yeah. yeah. Ego, which I know Ego, that can have a positive or negative connotation, but yeah, yeah. Um, certainly. And, and honestly, that's probably the one of the biggest lessons I've learned over the last two decades of learning languages is that the thing that's hard about learning a language is not the language usually. No. 
Mm. And I know this is a controversial topic too, especially with a language like Japanese. You're like, it's the hardest language in the world. I'm like, stop, yeah. please stop. It's it's just a language. Yes, it's very different from English. Yes, it's going to take you more time because you're going to have to learn a whole new way of writing. Yes, but I could also go on and on about all the ways that it's easier in many ways than something like Spanish. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but it's it's the two things I, that I think are the most difficult are, to your point, getting comfortable with making a fool of yourself and making mistakes. And then the other thing, which is huge, is tolerance for ambiguity and uncertainty. Because in the same way, you've gotten spoiled as an adult of understanding almost everything you see, hear, or experience. And then suddenly, you're not just a kid. You you are a, a zygote. You know, you, you, that's probably too far. You You understand enough because you're an adult and you understand body language and context. But there's so much that's going on around you linguistically and culturally that you don't understand. And that can be a really difficult thing to endure. And so I think is it, yeah, it's also yeah. what makes what makes languages so it's also what gives you or something certainly something I've experienced in the kind of honeymoon period of, of a language where you you kind of um feeling that you're better than you are or something at a certain as a step. beginner, especially. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and so a lot of that I think comes you know, comes down it's to called the being a politician, that, I think, isn't that what <laughs> <laughs> or being uh, male. Being male younger yeah, than thirty. Well, yeah. <laughs> Guilty. Um yeah. But but I think it comes from like knowing having learned a certain number of words or phrases, for example, the basics of grammar, being able to get your point across with words, but being completely oblivious to all the subtext that you're not you're not reading or understanding because you don't you're not culturally literate or you're not aware enough in the language. So it's kind of cool because you have this effect of like of um of of being able of being good in the language, but then you don't know all the stuff that you don't know. So right right you know. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of a, a false, it's kind of an illusion in a way. Yeah, it's a false summit. Yeah, but and then and that usually I think precedes sort of that trough of despair that then comes after that. Where and this is true, I think in in business, this is true in languages, anything where you have that initial high, and then you dip down, and then it's getting over that next trough and and sticking with it long enough to start getting up to that real learning curve. Where things before things level out there at, a, at another plateau, that ninety five percent you talked about, um, and again, like for me, this is sort of the, you know, there's the Tim Ferriss kind of approach, and then there's the Josh Waitskin approach. It's like, do you want to get to be the ninety five percentile in a short amount of time, or do you want to spend the rest of your life or twenty years getting that last five percent? And I, mm. I'm totally okay with getting to that. 95% or even 80% and then going, okay, that's good enough for me for this. I'm going to now move on to the other things. My first thought is that 80% seems like a, <laughs> I'll too, be very, very, too very, very happy. No, no, I'll be very happy with that. So in the case of, uh, in the case of Japanese, I mean, if I knew 80% of kanji, that'd be fine for me. I think there's a laziness component that I, that I haven't admitted to you as well in this. Mm, in I don't know about that. I don't think yeah. I would ever put the adjective lazy next to you, given all that you're doing. I think it's just priority. Priority and probably some blocks of some kind, which I wish I could, which mm. could probably do with being unearthed. But um, are yeah. you, have you done anything with? Are you familiar with CBT at all? Cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah, that's something that's crossed yeah. your radar. That's that's been a game changer. I talked about kind of these last six months that I've been working on my perfectionism, and that that more than anything else has been like the most effective thing for me. Is and it's funny. I haven't even I've never I haven't seen a therapist. I haven't actually gone and done 
a lot of the things with another professional. I've just read some books and that alone even has completely changed how I view things, the stories I tell myself. Mm. That's a whole other, you know, use of the word story that's maybe not so good of a <laughs> of a story. Well, not uh, all stories are good, right? That's true. Oh, yeah. the, the lies that we tell ourselves, like the little distortions we have, mm. um, which also, this is new. I've struggled off and on with depression for most of my adult life. And I always thought that it was some kind of environmental thing. Like it's what I'm eating, you know, being a nutritionist, I'm a hammer and everything's a nail. So I, I thought, oh, it's what I'm eating. I have some food sensitivity. It's probably I'm drinking too much. I'm, it's my environment. I'm not getting enough nature. I mean, I had a list of a hundred different explanations externally of what was causing the depression. Then I read this book called feeling good. And he right in the beginning came out and said, depression is caused by distorted thoughts that lead to distorted emotions. It's, it's literally your thoughts. Like, yes, there's a chemical imbalance in, in a lot of these cases, but the upstream primary cause is actually your thoughts, which I know is a bold statement, but I heard that and pondered it. And then I started experimenting with that and realized that that, that actually is true. And by being able to change, well, being able to catch those distorted thoughts before they go into your subconscious and manifest as depression or anxiety or perfectionism, whatever the downstream effect is, like game changer, total game changer. I Have mean, you ever read um, a book called Psycho-Cybernetics? No, but it sounds interesting. Dr. Maxwell Martz. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm kind of deep into that at the moment, and it's it's, it's sort of di- related but different. And um, it, he, he talks about the the idea of, uh, of self-image and the power that, that holds over us. I'm using the example of how people would, so he's actually a, a plastic surgeon and people mm. would come to him and say, you know, I, I've got a disfigured face. I need you to fix me and then I'll feel good again. And so he fixes them up, makes them beautiful. And then nothing changes. They've got that same old stuff because it's not about the physical image. It's about the self image. Right. And it's, it, he talks about how if we want to change something, you know, or achieve something in our lives. Often we, we, we work on the kind of external attributes. So here are the things you need to do in order to achieve that thing that you want to achieve. But mm-hmm. then actually it's your own self image, which is always going to be the moderating effect in all of this. So if your self image is at a certain, you know, not in a good, not in a good way, then it's always going to pull you back. And the, any, mm-hmm. the things that you achieve in your life are only ever going to be proportionate to, 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 to or relative to your own self image and so how that how that has the power to both massively hold you back in what you can achieve but also to open the doors to achieving anything um and so he kind of gets into the stuff that's traditionally been you know most people would write off as as very woo-woo stuff in terms of visualizations and um and, and things like that but he makes a very compelling case for 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 working on on self image and as I as I as I read this book, I, I just go every time I read, I go many many layers deeper, and and I kind of see it as having huge, huge implications for kind of everything we do, especially with you know with languages, mm-hmm. with uh, feelings of of, uh, of self esteem and depression, confidence, whatever you like. Anyway, I, I just good. wanted yeah, to I'll check it out. Make, make that recommendation. Not that I need any more books on my reading list, but 
it yeah. does sound pretty good. Tell, I'll, tell, I'll tell me about it. it. I've uh, I've been on a massive buying spree recently. As we talked about pre-roll, my library has been on a massive buying spree on my behalf as I've requested books. So, but still got to read them, and that's that's uh, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, the, tying this back into the language learning and the the thing about making mistakes and being more comfortable with with ambiguity and with uncertainty, I. I think I could see that being really powerful, whether it's CBT or these concepts of training yourself to see yourself as a person. Like I am someone who willingly makes mistakes or I am somebody who enjoys uncertainty and ambiguity, kind of starting to redefine your identities as that instead of I'm somebody who doesn't make mistakes. I'm somebody who, and this is, this is my problem or has been my problem for a long time with whether it's languages or, or business or anything else. It's, it's been binary all or nothing. It's like I either do things perfectly or it's a failure. That's obviously a, a great recipe for not feeling very good about yourself and not having a lot of fun. Whether yeah, yeah, you're learning a language or trying to launch an internet business. So, well, it's exactly what you said. I mean, if your if your own self image is, hey, I'm somebody who who sounds sounds bad when I speak Spanish, mm-hmm. then. And then that's the frame in which through which you view yourself when you speak. You know, it's not hard to see how that's going to manifest itself when you actually, you know, come to speak. You're going to approach right. that and go into that interaction with that framing. And so, you you, you know, it's going to be a very, very, very different um, outcome to if, for example, you go into like, you know, a good friend of mine who I always talk about as like the best communicator I've ever met despite being not very good at any of the languages he speaks. Mm-hmm. So this guy is a native Spanish speaker from Spain. And uh, I met him when he just moved to the UK. He didn't speak very good English at all. But, you know, by the second month in London, he had so many friends. You know, we'd be walking through through college together and people would be shouting, hey, you know, at him from the from 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 the cor- different points around the corridor. You know, he just, he would know everybody. He'd just have an incredible ability to bond with people mm-hmm. um despite his english being you know really not good at all but he his self-image was hey i'm somebody who is um i mean i, I don't know what he exactly what his internal narrative is but he views himself very strongly I and mean, i know him so well that I, I can say this with some confidence you know that he, he views himself very strongly as someone with such a high worth and value mm-hmm. as a person and being someone who you know he is at the heart someone who is funny and fun to talk to and to be around and you know he, he that's his image of himself he's a very very confident person um that it's impossible for him to go into any interaction whether he speaks the language or not mm-hmm. and not 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 go into that interaction with a kind of natural predisposition to making it come out fantastic and it's the most incredible skill and the more time you spend around him, it kind of rubs off on you as well. And you end up doing that mm. yourself and taking, I, I, I noticed this after I've spent time with him, how I will go into interactions so much more positively and w- with this kind of possibility of an outcome in my mind, which is not there for me, like during normal interactions, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge untapped treasure trove for better or for worse, you know, this, this, this self-image thing. And I'm only, I only feel like I'm just beginning to understand oh, yeah. what's there. Yeah, scratching the surface of it. Yeah, because I, I mean, 
I, from what I'm p- picking up here, like, I don't think either of us realized that this whole thing even existed or, or how important it was. It was kind of, to your point, it was sounded woo-woo or, you know, it, it wasn't something like tangible and applicable necessarily. But yeah, more and more I'm realizing like, actually, no, that is like, that's what really matters. And all this other stuff is sort of peripheral and accessories that are built on this foundation of that self-confidence and that self-image yeah healthy it's just it's just one long i guess it's it's life really isn't it's one long journey of understanding what really matters and what really kind of what levers really need to be pulled to kind of get 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 the result you want or maybe just like as you say just being cool with whatever it is whatever however things are being okay with that and and letting it be which, which doesn't mean that you don't strive and you don't pursue like your best self or and th- i think this is again this is another false dichotomy that people yeah. seem to they they will criticize like mindfulness or presence and say oh so you're just gonna sit there like a bump on a log and do nothing with your life it's like no 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 you you by not resisting what's happening in the present moment by not adding stories and distortions to it you can be that much more effective and productive and happy you know, so it's not it's not sitting in the lotus position with incense burning every day all day. It's you can do that if you want. That's not for me. Um, but being stressed and you know trying to always push and pull and like resist the way the world is right now, like you're not going to change it that way. You're going to make it just worse and worse and worse, and you're going to burn out. So that concludes part one of my chat with Ollie Richards. Stay tuned next week for part two. And in the meantime, please, if you haven't already, go and rate the show on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to the show. Also, I'm excited to announce that I am currently working on an updated version of my book, Master Mandarin. Uh, If you recall, I recently released a new version of Master Japanese. So I'm going to give the same love and attention now to my Master Mandarin book. So stay tuned for that. Uh, If you want to know when it's going to be released, go to ChineseMastery.com and you can put your email in to get notified. All right, we'll see you next week.